Welcome back to the Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's beautiful conversation is with someone that I have admired from afar for pretty much the last about six to eight months. I discovered him through Jordan B. Peterson on his podcast, uh, also through the Aubrey Marcus podcast. And I was really struck by the way that he thinks, the way that he communicates, and I wanted to share his perspective here. And his primary fields of study are perception, cognition, and cognitive neuroscience. And um, this conversation was very rich within those fields. I think this would be one that you'll probably want to take notes on. It'll be one that you perhaps may listen to again. And uh, if you're interested in the mind-body relationship, uh, the way that our words inform the way that we think, the way we feel, the way we structure our lives, that is this. So Dr. John Verveke, he is a true pioneer in the field of behavior and cognitive neuroscience and things of the sort. So very excited to share this with you guys. Lastly, I want to thank you guys sincerely for leaving reviews on the podcast. You can do it from your phone. It takes about 25 seconds or so. I want to thank particularly, let's read one here. This comes from CGO-74, male or female pronoun or not. This person says sapioeroticism at its finest. Your body will tremble when you hear Aaron say words like vulnerability. I did not know that was what the review was going to be before I read it. I was just picking one and uh, here we are. Body will tremble. Oh my! Thank you guys for reviews. I appreciate you very much. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. I hope you derive great value from it. Let's get to it with the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. John Verveke. What have you been tweeting about misinformation and disinformation? Well, I, I was requesting that people take greater care about it and be more careful. I think disinformation carries with it the sense. I think part of the meaning of the term disinformation is that there's an intent to deceive and manipulate. And I think we should be very clear to not apply disinformation to people who are speaking, the term disinformation to people who are speaking sincerely. I think that's pretending to ignore their intention, which I think is unfair and dismissive. I think the term misinformation, if we distinguish it from disinformation, means that people are saying things with, without the intent to deceive. They're saying things that they believe to be true that turn out to be false. I, say, I think calling that misinformation is pretentious uh, because I'm pretty confident that a lot of the things that I'm saying to you I believe to be true are going to turn out to be false. I think we are all doing that all day long to each other. And to call that misinformation sounds like we have some objective diagnostic that we are applying to people and uh, in some sort of determinate fashion, which is ridiculous. Um, I think the word misinformation, when it is distinguished from disinformation, and sometimes they're used as if they're equivalents, I think it's a, it's a useless term we should ab abandon. I think disinformation is fine, as a term, although I do not know what we gain by this term over the older terms of lying and bullshit, which are the primary ways in which we do those kinds of things. Do you perceive that the, the present state of the political landscape and media and accusations and bipartisanship and you know all this side otherness, do you think that that's a reflection of the, like our, our internal individual state? And that could be kind of like analog to the internal individual psyche representing. Is that a representation of what's happening at the individual level? 
like the overall zeitgeist of this discourse and this kind of confrontation and this push pull is that represent is that ultimately come back to something that we're all experiencing at an individual level i know it's a very messy way of asking no i, I think it's a good question i didn't find it that messy at all um i do th- i do think that we have increasingly internalized a particular what i'll call a cultural cognitive grammar what i mean by that is a set of presuppositions, assumptions, constraints on how we formulate problems, how we tackle issues, how we represent situations to ourselves. And I think that grammar has become increasingly impoverished uh, about what meaning is, about what reason is. And we have reduced a lot of that grammar to an adversarial zero-sum game approach that is ultimately, I think, doomed to fail. Let me give you a specific instance of this. Talk a little bit more concretely. We have progressively become enamored <laughs> with, almost blind to, what, uh, what Paul Ricoeur called the hermeneutics of suspicion. We take the moment of truth to be the moment when we discover the hidden agenda, when we discover the cabal, when we reveal the conspiracy. And of course, we got that from Freud and Marx and Nietzsche. Now, there's a role for the hermeneutics of suspicion because people do. Appearances can be used to distort and distract and mislead us. But here's the thing that we forgot, and this is a point that, for example, Marlo Ponti makes. Any moment of saying that was an illusion or that was a deception is completely dependent on this moment, but this is real. This is real. You can only, you can, to say that everything's an illusion makes no sense. It's like saying everything is tall. Real and illusion are comparative terms. We forget that it can't always be the case that appearances are deceptive, distracting, or misleading. We have forgot the hermeneutics of beauty, because beauty is the uh, appraisal or the apperception that the appearances are disclosing reality rather than distorting it or distracting us from it. I mean beauty properly understood. I don't mean just that which gives us pleasure. And so we have become progressively susceptible, and I think even dominated by a hermeneutics of suspicion that prevents us realizing that that mode is always dependent on a deeper mode, the hermeneutics of beauty, whereby we say, no, but in this case, appearances are disclosing reality. And that has to be the case if you and I are going to enter into real, real, the possibility of real discussion, because if I can't take how you're appearing to me to ever disclose you, then the, all I will, the only attitude I can have to you is one of manipulation and control. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, uh, upon reading through your work, one of the terms that I came across was a meaning crisis, like for yes. a crisis of lacking meaning. And yes. part of the, the description that I, I read off of that was having an alienation from world and each other each other which that is consistent you mentioned marx which now it's kind of a, a funny time to mention Karl marx but he has the four alienations you know so you alienate yes. yourself from nature and from your work and etc cetera, etc cetera. ultimately you're alienating yourself you alternate alternate eventually you end up alienating yourself from yourself so well, you, an yeah, alienation yeah. from any part is an alienation from every part it's all inextric- yeah. inextricably connected and i i i, I wonder if yes. perhaps some of this sensation of otherness that we're clearly seeing express out culturally in, in media and you know in streets and 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 things of the sort. I wonder if perhaps that stems from I have a bias towards this, but like a root alienation away from nature. 
and then trickling into the rest of aspects of ourselves. Well, I, I guess I, I don't, I'm not trying to trump you, but I think the alienation is even deeper than an alienation to nature. I think it's an alienation to being to a more fundamental ontological level. I think nature is one of the primary places in which we can encounter a complexity to how reality presents itself so we can get a deeper appreciation for being. And, and by being, I mean sort of being with a capital B, the, the fundamental way in which reality is constantly realizing itself and disclosing itself to us. And, it, and so I think we are not only cut off from nature, we are, un, we are cut off, and if this doesn't sound too pretentious, we are progressively getting cut off from reality in, in a profound way. The ability to say that was real and I love it because it was real. Yeah. Yeah. And enter metaverse. It's kind of like <laughs> yeah, yes. Like, it's like we're going through. There's a. There, it's like we're entering through like a group schizophrenic schizophrenic experience here. That one of the things that I was I was reading from Jung that I wanted to. It was reading previously, but that I, I had it on my computer, so I wanted to read on here. Was Carl Jung the greatest threat? Said that the greatest threat to civilization lies not with the force of nature, nor with any physical disease, but with our inability to deal with the forces of our own psyche. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I think. Jung is a little too Kantian uh, in some places for me, but insofar as we've lost the the connection between self understanding and reality understanding, I think we went we've gone through this long process of because of romanticism and other things in which they, they, we 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 seem to think there are these two separate projects: understanding reality and understanding the self. And I think that that's mistaken. Notice how we. It, that uh, we, we we fuse the two together without realizing it. Notice the pun there. When we talk about things like the projects of self-realization, well, that's not just a project, right, of the self. That's a project about the self being in proper relationship to reality. That's what it is to realize something. And so those two things need to be deeply rebound back together. It's that sense of the the the, the project of the self and the project of being in contact with reality, this was what I see so deeply in Plato. They need to be bound together. They need to be bound together in, in, in something like love. And we've lost that capacity in a profound way. Yep. What's the, the playbook? And why does any of this matter? Because, you know, a lot of this is kind of can just turn into like intellectual wanking, you know, about sure, about sure. So, like, where does this come into something where I think is interesting? Not that I'm, I'm saying you are you are intellectually wacky, or but I, like a lot of it. We can spin ourselves in words and complex yes, ideas, yes. and then at some point, it's like, well, I need to feed my kids, and I, you know, my ass jiggles too much, and I'm overweight, and you know, over half of our population is in that case. Over a third is obese, sure, and sure, you know, addiction to drugs and self-harm and anti-anxiety medication, and it's like there's like there's real shit happening. Where does do these concepts these broader bigger concepts actually come into like real life well they come into real life in 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 two ways and the first is that you have to understand that what i'm talking about is not properly you know appreciated just in the in the intellectual arena i totally agree with the point you made what i mean by that is your everyday intelligence the intelligence by which you make sense of your world so you can move around it i mean the what you rely on to be a general problem solver, to solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. There is nothing more rubber meets the road than that. That that capacity, the very processes that make that capacity functional for you, also make you perennially susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. 
You can't have one without the other. And so what we need, right, is we need practices, not beliefs. And I can talk about that in the second point if you want. But we need practices that help us engage in a profound kind of self-correction so that we can Again, in a domain general way, across many domains and varieties of problems and varieties of domain, reliably self-correct and reconnect the self and reality back together. This is not highfalutin intellectual jargon. This is that that requirement to overcome foolishness is not optional for any intelligent agent. And so if you are, for example, trying to deal with addiction, you need to understand the self-deceptive mechanisms that are at work in addiction and to cultivate the skills, states of mind, and character traits that will give you the appropriate power to address that self-deception in a comprehensive and integrated manner. Wisdom is not optional. That's where this meets everybody because we all know when we have moments where we're somewhat centered and at peace, how much we repeat patterns of self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior throughout many domains of our life. And we sometimes wonder, and we should, how is it that I know about this pattern and I know I shouldn't do it, and yet I keep doing it again and again and again? So I think it's a lot of interesting things there. One, you know, you can't, always read your label from inside the container you know so it's hard to really know what's going on from from inside or inside out and i I think it's really interesting when if there's anything that i've gathered from the last two years of like lockdowns and blm and and all the things that have happened it's 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 like a heavier barbell or heavier a heavier load to lift from from a lens of compassion and being able to have compassion for people that have radically different ideas and perceptions than i do Mm, mm -hmm. and to be able to actually respect them and and not come from a place of i am righter or they are wronger or you know something of that you know acknowledging that if I grew up in the exact same circumstance with the same sperm and the same egg and the same nutrition and the same parents and all that stuff, like I would be them. I would represent that idea and that concept. And yeah. so I think it's interesting to even come from a place of understanding like, well, who, who am I in the first place? Who's right? <laughs> Who's wrong? You know, and, and, and what's, you know, what are we, what, what's, what's the value of all this, this, this bickering and back and forth and push pull and polarization. I think ultimately it seems like it's, it's probably quite healthy as long as, you know, I don't know. I don't see. I don't know if it's healthy. I think the degree. I, I think the degree to which we are locked into the courtroom model of debate and adversarial yeah. processing, and somebody must win and somebody must lose. I think is to lose something, and I think you put your finger on something that I want to slow down on and open up. Overcoming my bias by myself is virtually impossible. Hmm. The way we, the way kids learn to overcome bias is by internalizing the wider perspective of their parents or their siblings, or their peers. My, mo- my most powerful access to self-correction is another person who has an alternative perspective than I do. And what democracy, at least this is what I would argue, used to do was we're committed to this jointly, that you can help me self-correct better than I can, and I can help you self-correct better than you can on your own. And that doesn't mean we have to agree. It means we are committed to the realization that we are interdependent, this is the idea of opponent processing versus adversarial processing, and we have lost that. And I want to suggest replacing the courtroom of debate with the courtyard of discourse, where people come together 
and they're not trying to win. They're trying to do the following. How I'm going to learn something from you and I'm going to self-correct from you, even if I don't end up agreeing with you, and I'm going to allow you to use me to do the same. And that, I think, is a fundamental requirement for democracy. And I think we have lost that fundamental commitment in a very deep way. Yeah. Where do you think the urge for cancellation and silencing comes from? Because it seems like it, it seems like there is one side, if there is sides, that yeah. seems to be trend more towards kind of cancellation of each other or those that have differing ideas. Um, yeah, which, I wouldn't I mean, tie, yeah, I wouldn't I tie this, the side part. Well, what I'm going to say is, I mean, that might be the case now, but historically, yeah. the, the capacity for these sides to do this, I think, is pretty clear. Both sides are, will have do it and will do it and have done it and will do it, etc. Yeah, right. I think that what we can get locked into, especially when we lose the capacity to be deeply connected to each other, to ourselves and to the world, we lose, when we lose that capacity of connection, we replace it with the own alternative strategy, which is, like I said, if I can't connect with you, I will seek to dominate you. And the cancellation movement is, I'm not going to listen to you because I, I won't, there's a fear that I might understand you or you might move me from my position. But largely, like I said, I can't really connect to you. And therefore, I'm going to dominate you. And Cancel culture and dismissal culture is exactly that. I will, right? I will dominate you because I can't actually connect to you. And I can't connect you either through, you know, the way I've been enculturated, but also it can also be through willful ignorance. But you have to take, you have to take cancel culture as a negative symptom of the meaning crisis. It's precisely because of the fact that we are incapable of binding ourselves, like you said at the very beginning, because of this profound four kinds of alienation, like when that is the case, what else is there available to us other than to try and dominate the external environment? It's the same thing if you put somebody in an environment, in, like, like when they've been brought up with environmental trauma, and the environment is very unpredictable, they will become very aggressive, or they will become very submissive, as those are the only strategies available for dealing with an environment that ultimately they, doesn't make sense to them. Right. It's like learned helplessness or complete yes. destruction. Yes. Learned helplessness or deep aggression. Like or the I, classic. I, I, the, I, I, flip the, I flip the board over because I've, I've, I've deemed that I, I can't win. You know, or, so I, just, or, or even worse, I don't, or even worse, I don't even know what game is being played. Right. Mm -hmm. I, that's, I, I think that's for many people. Right. The, the fact that, like, the fact that people are regarding, others on the other side as just inherently irrational is, is deeply concerning because what you're basically saying is, I've determined that that person is not really capable of making sense. Uh, and that means I've determined ahead of time, I prejudged prejudice, I've prejudged that there's no way that that person could be a source of insight or a source of learning for me. When you put people into practices, where that fundamental assumption is challenged by the structure, the practice, they very quickly start to move away from that attribution of irrationality to each other. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like I, I hear myself kind of stutter and, and fumble and feel this internal conflict even saying the word side because I believe that the concept of side is something that's been culturally indoctrinated in the probably semi-recent 
and and perhaps there there could have been a time where the concept of this kind of dualistic left right democrat republican you know or however you you yeah. you break that apart that just wasn't even a part of our our linguistic construct to be able to even wrap our minds around do you know what i'm saying yeah, is that is that I do. like is there something like an original which again this i think for me comes back to like within nature you know or like paganism or or nature worshiping or something of the sort you know i wonder if there's if that's kind of somewhat of a less dualistic existence in some ways because you you are ultimately continually practicing being congruent with the entirety of everything and also acknowledging your place in the whole again that was a lot of words well that's good though i like a lot of words um uh, <laughs> yeah you need, I, you need both you can get wrapped up in like dualism's bad man you know or sides like when you side because you got to figure out where to like you got to put cake into your face and not just like put it into a wall so having separation is important but i think it's it's kind of like a you know this the, the pendulum can swing well, that's why I was invoking opponent processing rather than adversarial processing, something I originally worked out with my friend and colleague, Leo Ferraro. Let me give you an example, uh, because opponent processing is rife. I want to give two quick examples. Okay, so your body is needing to constantly calibrate and adjust your level of arousal. I don't mean your sexual arousal. I mean your metabolic arousal. Like how aroused should I be in a situation? How does, how does nature solve that problem in you? Nature solves that problem by your autonomic nervous system being divided into two different systems, the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. The sympathetic is biased to seeing as much as it can as threat or opportunity and raising your level of arousal. Your parasympathetic system is biased to seeing as much as it can as calm and safe and lowering your level of arousal. And then they're locked together. They're constantly pulling and tugging on each other so that by putting these two biased systems against each other, they constantly correct each other. And your level of arousal is constantly fluidly, dynamically being adjusted. One other example, you have an opponent processing what's between what's in your focal attention and what's in your peripheral right? Both perceptually and cognitively. And so you're constantly, right now, you're att- part of your attention is trying to pull away and uh, pull away from the current context, think about alternatives. And then there's another part that's focusing in and they're constantly pulling and pushing on each other so that your attention is constantly dynamically recalibrating itself. That's opponent processing. Democracy, to my mind, is supposed to be trying to emulate something like that between people. But it's like what we, it's like the sympathetic system is trying to kill the parasympathetic system and destroy it, in which case it will cease to be functional as well. Or the, the, the tension between your background and foreground awareness. It's like your foreground, no, no more background awareness ever. And then you're locked and then you're doomed. Like when you, when you, when you, when you understand this, that's what I was trying to get at with, if you look at nature, you even look within human biology all the way up from uh, autonomic nervous system to how we're, our perception and cognition is working, you see opponent processing at work because of its enormous capacity for super dynamic, super nuanced and sophisticated self-correction. I'd like to take a moment to share something that I've been taking to make sure I'm covering all the bases with getting my greens. I've been taking Organifi's green juice for the last, it's been about three months, and I really love this stuff. Uh, it tastes absolutely delicious. It's like one of the best 
beverages you could possibly serve on a hot summer day, throw some ice on there. It contains not only greens, but also adaptogenic mushrooms such as ashwagandha. It also has matcha green tea, so it's excellent for energy support, antioxidants, and genuinely being a refreshing beverage. So if you would like to get yourself a 20% discount on this or any other Organifi product, you can jump over to Organifi.com slash align. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash align for 20% off. If you're not totally satisfied with your purchase, you can get your money back. I think you guys are going to love the green juice. I hope you enjoy. That's it. That's all. Organifi.com slash align. Also wanted to share something that has been an absolute game changer for my sleep and muscular recovery. That is magnesium, particularly mag breakthrough from BioOptimizers. Magnesium is a mineral that it's just wise to supplement. It's largely deficient in modern day soil. It's largely deficient in most people for that reason. And mag breakthrough is a fantastic complex of magnesium. It contains all different, all seven different forms. And it's fantastic. I even chew the, I open the capsules and taste it. I think it tastes great. might be a little weird, but uh, I genuinely appreciate the flavor of the product. And uh, I think it's important to implement into anyone's life. If you care about your sleep, if you care about muscular recovery, and the best part is you can get yourself a discount by going over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcasts. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash align podcast. And you'll get yourself a 10% discount on top of any other discounts they may have. So jump over to magbreakthrough.com slash align podcast for a discount. If you do not love this product, it doesn't make a difference in your life. Get your money back. No questions asked. I think you're going to dig it. That's it. Magbreakthrough.com slash line podcast. Yeah, it's interesting how our environmental conditions inform the way that we think and perceive information. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like that's something that I was trying to look this up and I couldn't find it. But at one point, I, you might have you might be familiar with this, but, you know, there's the those the study with different length lines and like, oh, the, the ash, little, Solomon ash. Yes, yes. Very so, much. But so so within that, I, I believe I heard this. I have to like fact check or whatever. But I, I believe people from ancestral traditions or like hunter gatherer tribes or like, you know, people sort of like live, you know, in nature, essentially. That doesn't work with them from what I from what I read at one point. Like they can they can see that they can see the distances differently. And they literally see um, I'm I'm butchering this, so I apologize. But they, they literally <laughs> okay. they literally they literally see the world differently. And there's certain like visual tests like that that an industrialized culture population we see the lines in a different way. Whereas someone that comes from another culture they see the world in a different way. You know, and it kind of comes back to how our our you know the shape of our environment in, informs our mind. And then I guess perhaps my to turn that into something that would be you know, like a question of sorts is perhaps could we leverage our environment to inform better thought processes and better discourse and better community and better connection? I, I, I well, first of all, I'm not, I, I, I'm not aware of that variant on the ash experiment, so I can't comment on it. I, it's not, ignorant. it's not, it's not specific to the ash. The ash is really interesting as, as well, which is more about, you know, us agreeing with, with groups or being influenced. Right, by right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a different, it was a different thing. I got to look it up. I apologize for even mentioning that, but it's, there's no, no, people, no, no, people, it's people from hunter gatherer tribes 
literally will perceive another another example of this would be people from you know or looking at like ancient chinese art you know or taoist art and, and or confucian yep. art and it highlighting the background as opposed Much more to the, the, the foreground right, yes, as opposed much, to yeah. as opposed to highlighting the subject you know yes, and that's yes. something again that's a product of us creating art which ultimately comes from our internal image you know representation of the world coming out under the form of you know onto a canvas but it, it it shifts our perception, you know, based off of our environmental conditions. I think, and I think now that we've got that as our point of discussion, I want to open up on it because this is one of the main claims of for e-cognitive science, the way it's embodied, embedded, enacted, and extended. And again, I'll use a biological metaphor. Um, think about niche construction in the biological sense. The organisms are shaping the environment by their behavior, but the environment puts pressure on them, evolutionary pressure, et cetera, epigenetic pressure. And so, right, the organisms are shaping the environment, which is shaping the organisms, which is shaping the environment. And that is very much the case for us. And what, what I mean by that is we need to stop thinking about cognition in our head. Cognition is more like the adaptivity of an organism. It's between us and the world. It's being co-created by us and the world in the, a kind of a cognitive version of niche construction. You're, you're doing that. You're shaping how you're seeing me, but you're also shaping how you are presenting yourself to me. And you're trying to get those to loop in a way that is, you know, self-organizing and effective for you. So very much, right? We can alter how people are thinking by altering the environment they're in but the reverse is also the case people can be within the same environment and alter how what they're finding salient in that and that also can draw out aspects of the environment that they that have previously been hidden to them so the environment has the capacity to draw more out from us but we also have the capacity to draw out more from the environment and that we could use both of those in a mutually reinforcing fashion to really open people up. Because when, think about this, think about this, you know, when you're doing this with another person, it's called mutually accelerating disclosure. If you open up a little and in response to that, I open up to you and then that allows you to, and, and we do that mutually. That's how you fall in love with somebody, not necessarily romantic love. It can be friendship. It can be fellowship. But what I'm saying is we can do that with the world. We can learn practices. So the environment draws out from us, but we draw out from the environment in a mutually reinforcing fashion. So we learn how to fall in love with being again. Yeah, it seems like love drops us into, I don't know, maybe say like a flow state or like unicity, or I've heard you speak yes. about the, the value of awe, you know? And, yes, very much, and I, very and much. I think that that's one of those things that can kind of jump that, I don't know, autonomic ladder, you know, or, or, or our perception, take us out of that separation or maybe like yes. fight, fight attack and take us into this wow and yes. suddenly everyone that's in that wow together so we don't have all these boundaries and restrictions and separations it's just like oh wow like man this we we, we shared this moment you know totally. from there we start to you know we have you know there's less differences and then we start to see some of the similarities between the, each other there's evidence there's good experimental evidence from this like the griffith labs and other places so give people psychedelics and then of that portion there's a reliable proportion there's a reliable uh, proportion of the, the, the people that are given psychedelics that will have a bona fide mystical experience 
like experience, like you said, this the experience of uni- unicity, of awe, of profound reverence, of conformity in love. And what you find reliably is that the personality trait of openness has increased. Personality traits are supposed to be stable. And what you get is long-term increases in a capacity for openness. And openness is predictive of being more cognitively flexible, being willing to take other perspectives into account. So do I think there is a probable connection between inducing awe and flow it properly, by the way, because you can hijack flow, but in, or you can hijack all of these, but inducing these properly, inducing the, these wisely, and it helping to ameliorate our default mode of the hermeneutics of suspicion and adversarial processing directly, directly, directly. And, 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 and interestingly, those, experience, those experiences are predictive of enhanced meaning in life. My lab did an experiment. You know, myst- the more mystical experience, well, it's a correlational study, but there's plausibility about the relation, right? That uh, the more mystical experiences you have, the more meaningful you will find your life. So you find your life more meaningful, you're not starving for meaning, and you're more open and flexible with others. Will this make a difference? Of course it will. Of course it will. Yeah. That's, um, I'd be interested to unpack more what you mean when you say that the proper way of tapping into these states compared to the hijacked form. Sure. So... Let's talk about the flow state because it's easiest because many people, because the flow state is universally accessible, most people have had some flow experiences in their life. So I'm going to zero in on that, right? Although 30 to 40% of the population have had mystical experiences as well, typically. So let's compare two, two people. And culture um, and, and people people crave those, which I think is interesting. I think that's, that's inherent to they, our they, physiology. And if well, you don't, we crave if you, them for good reason. Yeah, I think with good yeah. reason. So, yeah, I think I, th- I think it's it's literally it's it's a, a nutrient to the, the 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 growth and development of the individual and the species, and it's something that's been kind of tossed under the rug and kind of like denatured from Western culture in part. But I think we're I agree. continually we're continually kind of seeking that, you know, and it, well, and it expresses but, out in different ways. Well, let me comment on that before we go back to the to, the, the previous yeah. point because, <laughs> because look. Self-correction and self-transcendence are bound together. You cannot see how you've misformulated a problem unless you can self-transcend it. And just like we self, we, we, we learn self-transcendence through other people, we learn self-transcendence through our ability to relate to aspects of reality that are beyond our egocentric concerns. Just like what you're talking about here. We crave, we crave those states that Right, have been evolu- by have been marked by evolutionary processes that indicate when we are in, when our cognition is more insightful, when our implicit learning is picking up on the real causal patterns in the world. That w- in, in short, we crave situations of self transcendence because they're powerful markers of real opportunities for deep self correction, and that is central to your cognitive agency. Right, you're an agent to the degree to which you can self direct. Like what? Di- what distinguishes? Like everything behaves. That's a useless word. If I hit, a, if, a, if I drop a glass, it breaks. That's how it behaves. You're different. You're an agent. You can determine the consequences of your behavior and self-correct in order to change the outcomes. So, if you are an agent that is has gained through evolution a capacity to note situations of optimal self-transcendence, of course you are going to evolve to hunger for that. That makes deep, deep sense. 
Now, I want to go back to the previous thing you asked me, which is yeah. how do you distinguish it from being hijacked from it being now that from it being proper? So this is the issue of transfer, right? So compare, and I'm not saying this is the case for all people or for all video games, but the WHO does recognize the disorder of video game addiction. So what happens in video game addiction is this. I, because video games are designed, they're incentivized to get you into the flow state. Okay. That's how they work, but they're incentivized to keep you in the fictional world so that you don't try and transfer. You don't learn how to transfer, how to flow in the fictional world, the virtual world in the real world. So it doesn't percolate your psyche or permeate your world. Compare that because I know this from firsthand experience. Let me give you the story. I was in graduate school. I had been doing Tai Chi Chuan religiously in both senses of the word for like three years. I was having all these amazing effects, right? Getting all hot as fire and cold as ice and all this stuff, right? But my, my fellow students came up to me and they said, what, what are you doing? And I, I, thought, oh, I thought I was being offensive or something. And I said, what do you mean? They said, oh, you're much more balanced in your conversation. You're much more flexible in how you're relating to people, right? And I realized, oh my gosh, all this stuff at the sensory motor psychosomatic level I've been doing in Tai Chi Chuan, it is percolating to deeper levels of my psyche and it's permeating throughout my life. It is designed to transfer. It, there's all this, there's this philosophical ecology of practices around the movements and things so that it, you're incentivized to transfer that this as broadly as you can. That's what I mean by the proper context. You need to flow in a place that will right? And in a way that will allow, again, for the widest possible transfer that you can. And you need not only quantitatively, qualitatively, you need to flow in as many experiences where meaning making is occurring as opposed to just manipulation or deception, etc. How do you define meaning making? So I define meaning making as that sense of connectedness that we've been talking about from the beginning. And, and, and here's the thing you have to have to get that most of that meaning making is not being carried out at the level of language and propositions, because all, all that that gives you is your beliefs. And, and our culture is so fixated on belief, but most of your, your beliefs matter. Of course they do, right? I'm not, I'm not denying that. But you know, when I get up and go get some water, I'm not relying just on my beliefs. I'm relying on my skills. And skills aren't the same as beliefs, and they're not trained in the same way. They don't operate in the same way. But they connect me more directly to the environment than my beliefs do. Try and exercise a skill without doing anything. You can't do it. You can talk about your beliefs ad nauseum, but, you know, well, how do I know that, you know, uh, you know that, that you can catch a football? Well, I basically have to do it. I have to show it. I have to be in interaction. The same thing with, right, your states of mind. You have a state of mind right now. You know what it's like to be you here now in this situation. What you're foregrounding, what you're backgrounding, how you're sizing things up, what aspects of your agency are being called forth. Your ability to sleep is not probably, be, I hope not, not being called up right now in any important fashion. And that is, again, about your situational awareness. How are you plugged in? How are you present? Speaking of virtual reality, that's what contributes to the realness of a virtual reality, how present you feel, how much you feel that you are here now, right, in that world. And then below that is your, like below that perspectival knowing, is your participatory connection. You rely on all the ways in which being, nature, 
is shaping itself and shaping you. I'm in time, I'm in space, so are all these objects around me. The way evolution has shaped me, I have this hand, and so certain objects are graspable by me. Culture, oh, look, they've made this bottle, and now, right, the, the physics made the matter, and I'm a material being. The biology shaped my hands. The culture shapes me and taught me how to drink, and this bottle becomes graspable. All of that is connecting me. All of that's going on beneath the babble uh, that we are, where we're constantly talking about our beliefs. Meaning-making is the way in which your participatory knowing, your perspectival knowing, and your procedural knowing connect you so you have a sense of fittedness to the world so that your agency and and the way the world presents itself as an arena for your action belong together fit together you know yeah. when this is missing you know this is when this is missing when you're homesick when you're lonely when you're in another culture and you feel culture shock you know what i'm talking about i do know what you're talking about at least subjectively with myself and i i think it's interesting do you know Charles Eisenstein? Are you guys friends? I feel like you guys would have connected in some capacity. Are you no, that? no, <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> All right, never mind. Well, he's he's great. He's very smart. And we just recorded a conversation. He has a, a book that I'm not remembering the name. I wrote it a, a long time ago, but it's essentially about how our self-image and our perception of ourself or our story of our, our identity, our identity structure, at least I think this is what it's about just based off of talking about having read the book, but how that in, informs our shape in a way. And this is something that I've been yes. thinking about for a, a long time. And I don't really talk about it much because I don't really have much of a foundation or anything to grasp with it. It's just kind of like a theory that I keep to myself. But we have this perception of who we think we are. And I, and I believe that our physical, cellular, structural expression, in, at least in part, if not in large part, is a physical, visual expression of that internal belief or our internal self-image. And I think that it's possible to start to come in and start to reassess and change and reshape and massage that internal identity structure and then change our, 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 you know, our, our physical experience. And, and, and this would be specific to like, I want to be less fat or I want to be more fit or I want to be smarter. Yes. I want to be more well-expressed. I want to be more sexy. I want to be any of those things. We're fitting in this story or idea of who we think we are. And then there's the deeper inherent self, which Moshe, Moshe Feldenkrais, who's like a body guy, who would call that like yep, your yep, inherent, yep. Self, inherent self is like the, yeah. the, these are, this is an immutable part of yourself. It's like the, like the, the, the bottom portion of the glacier, you know, and, and we can tap into that at any time, but most of us are kind of riding that game self or that superficial topical layer. You know, I'm an American, I'm a guy, you know, I'm a Democrat or Republican or, you know, whatever story you have yourself, but you can hack in deeper and start to create meaningful change, which then comes out and you know where the rubber hits the road i think we can literally change the shape of our bodies and change the shape of our minds if we're able to tap into that part i think that's deeply right uh, and this goes to what i was talking about with niche construction and let's go back to the topic of addiction to talk about that yeah addiction's a big one yeah we tend to think of addiction as like the disease model but the uh, the work of you know mark lewis where we replace it with what he calls reciprocal narrowing uh, let me give you uh, like one piece of many pieces of information why the sort of disease model is inappropriate and why it connects to what you just said so you have soldiers in vietnam using opioids and opioids are deeply addictive in one sense they're fright but then they come back to the united states and many of them the vast majority of them stop using now why because of these deeper levels, 
because what's happened is notice that right the arena has changed and their agency has changed the way those two fit together they're no longer in nam they're in the united states they're no longer a soldier there's a civilian the whole arena the whole agent arena relationship has been altered and they stop the vast majority of them stop using the opioids like heroin heroin now think about what that means just think about how deeply what that means so it means that we again don't think of the addiction as in you think of the addiction as between you and the world this is mark lewis's model what happens in addiction is i take it like here's a stressful situation i take a substance in order to reduce the physiological distress but what that does is it reduces my cognitive performance that actually makes the world more threatening so now the world is shrinking and then i take more of the substance right so what's happening is the world is shrinking that's making my cognition lose its flexibility and its range then the world is it's called reciprocal narrowing until the world can't be any other than it is and i can't be any other than i am and then that's the state of addiction in which there are no options for who you are and there's no there's no possible future in your arena but here's the thing once you get out of it's the addiction is in me and into no the addiction is dynamically between me and the world and i remember the launch when i was actually talking to mark about this and i said to mark but if you can reciprocally narrow you can reciprocally open you can open up like i was talking about earlier you can learn to draw more from your environment so it draws more from you so that draws more from the environment it draws more from you can learn to open up you can reciprocally open up and that is precisely the situation that you're getting in things like flow and the mystical experience our sense of meaning marks when we are reciprocally opening like that and that's why it's so closely connected to love because love is where we have a very powerful experience of reciprocally opening with another human being what do you think a point of all of that is like what's the point of opening or closing in the first place well, it depends what you mean. <laughs> What's the point to us? Or, yeah, like what? Like where are we? Where are we going? Is like there's some place that we as a species and as individuals like should go, you know, or like you know it would be ideal to go. Um, like I know this is so, kind of like a, like a circular. Yeah, probably going to go nowhere with this question, but I just wonder. It's like that's where my mind goes. It's like, oh great, we're going to somewhere better. I'm like, where is that? Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> there, there's uh, there, there's two things that, uh, that I'd want to pull apart. And some people, so I, I've been up until now, I've been talking about what sci scientists, like psychologists and cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, philosophers call meaning in life, this sense of connectedness that when any, whenever people are given a choice, do you want this sense of connectedness or not have it? They'll reliably say, I want the connectedness. I want to be, you know, deeply connected to myself, to other people and to the world. I want to be connected to things that have a meaning other than just how they're you know, relevant to my personal preferences. This is why people have children, etc. So when I'm talking that, I, I, I feel co confident talking about. When you're talking about this other thing, the meaning of life, like if there's some plan for you, um, I, 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 I'm at best agnostic. I don't see plans in the way the natural world unfolds. Evolution is non-teleological. Physics is non-teleological. So I suspect, and I suppose this will piss off some of the religious people who might be listening, I suspect that there isn't um, a telos in the universe. Now, maybe this will give more comfort to religious people. Nevertheless, one of the things that I think we, like I said before, I don't think wisdom is optional 
for us. And I think we are all individually and collectively obligated to try and become as wise as we can. Where wise doesn't mean saying obscure, profound things like in a French accent while smoking a cigarette or whatever. Wise means what we've been talking about. It means this comprehensive capacity to overcome foolishness, to enhance flow, to reliably engender connectedness between us and the world, between us and other people. And then if you say, well, why should we do that? I don't have any answer to you other than, like, that's just what we deep, most deeply love. And where is that all going? I don't think it's going anywhere else than doing the following. Taking a biological primate and reliably through agopic love and through good presentation of ecologies of practice that cultivate wisdom and turning that primate into a person in a community of persons. And then if you ask me, why should we do that? I simply say to you, if I had to choose between a universe that had persons in it and one that doesn't, I think that one that has persons in it is a better universe. And if you ask me why, I can't give you any answer to that. And I'd wonder about anybody who had an answer for that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it's probably the only way that the universe can exist, <laughs> at least in, you know, in our individual experience, because we need to have you know, the projector to create it or to be able to project the image in the first place. I, I wonder if your sense of like something that I've heard is kind of like, uh, you know, a lot of adults, you, know, you can't teach an, an old mm. dog new tricks kind of thing. You know, and I wonder if perhaps we culturally and in, I, I like I end up bullying Western culture a lot, but just, I guess just people in general, but industrialized culture, Western culture, like you and me. Uh, I wonder if maybe we've bypassed certain developmental steps in childhood, oh, such totally. as like rite of passage yeah. and, and things of the sort that perhaps would veer us to this place to, to use language I learned from you, um, Philo Nikea, I think is that's like the love of victory rather than philosophy a love of wisdom i wonder if there's some like kind of agenda that we have of like trying to prove to ourselves or it's ultimately coming from some deep-seated insecurity or fear of death or grasping that causes us to want to conquer and destroy and zero-sum type approach as opposed to just wanting to you know embrace and you know take it all in and and share i mean that's again a good deep question and i, I have this 50 hour uh video series trying to uh, <laughs> address it um so um let me see what i can do uh, uh, uh to be responsible and responsive to your question one thing i can say is our culture has lost the 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 deep part the, the, the deep sense and appreciation of non-propositional knowing we are so enamored of propositions and beliefs we have forgot about skills we forgot about states of mind. We forgot about traits of character. We forgot about the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory. And the problem with that is, as I argued earlier, the non-propositional is where the lion's share of meaning-making in the sense of dynamic, evolving connectedness is being found. So we have cut ourselves off. And in, and in doing that, we also we have lost the distinction between wisdom and knowledge, and we're now starting to lose the distinction between knowledge and information. So I think we're creating an environment that very much does not properly educate people in being able to connect to the non-propositional kinds of knowing, being able to discern the differences between information and knowledge, knowledge and wisdom. And we notice what you made reference to. We've lost ritual because the point of ritual is to help connect 
propositions to procedures, perspectives, and modes of participation. That's what a ritual is help is designed to do. It's not designed to just change your beliefs. It's designed to get you like, well, this is what it would be like to be a man. These are the skills you need to start really cultivating. This is the character. You're changing your character in a fundamental way, for example. This is what it's like to become a woman, etc. We have lost a lot of those practices that were designed to connect us to the non-propositional kinds of knowing so that we can access, activate, accelerate, and appreciate the meaning-making connections. I call it religio because religio means to be bound or connected that are so central. And our culture is impoverished about this. So let me give you an example. Clear, easy example. Ask, I do this with my students. Where do you go from information? Oh, the internet. They easily yell, they hold up their phones. Where do you go for knowledge? Quite a bit slower. Um, the university, science. Where do you go for wisdom? And then there's a dead silence. There's a dead silence in the room. That is how we're failing our children. It's how I'm failing my students, right? not being able to give them like how to properly distinguish between information, knowledge, and wisdom, and to undergo the transformations, the ritual practices that inculcate in the ability to meaningfully discern between those. Very excited to share something that has been a game changer for my strength development and overall energy levels that is supplementing with essential amino acids. I highly recommend going back and listening to the episode with Angelo Keeley. He goes deep into the nerdy science of why this matters so much. What I really like about supplementing with essential amino acids, particularly from Keon, one, it tastes delicious. So I add a scoop of it to my water bottle before or after I work out or just really anytime throughout the day. Uh, another thing that's really great about supplementing with essential amino acids is you are increasing your protein intake while not increasing your overall calories throughout the day. So if you're looking to lose weight, but you want to be meeting your protein demand, tossing a scoop or two or three of this into your water bottle throughout the day is a fantastic idea. And you can get yourself a 20% discount by going to getkion.com slash align. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N.com slash align for 20% off of your purchase of Kion's essential aminos. I want to take a moment and share a resource that has been invaluable for my mental, emotional, and physiological well-being. That is an app referred to as Open. What Open does is provide a plethora of world-class teachers on breathwork, meditation, and mindfulness practices. So you get 30 days free by using the Align code. If you're interested in trying this yourself, I've been using it for the last month and I really dig it. You just set it up on your phone or laptop or wherever and you get a plethora of amazing teachers and they walk you through different practices ranging from a few minutes to longer than that. I did a breathwork practice that is amazing for boosting energy levels, boosting cognitive clarity. It's something that I regularly do before recording a podcast in particular. If I'm feeling maybe a little bit brain foggy, I'm feeling a little tired, 
just knocking out this nine minute breath practice, which I included on my Instagram handle at Align Podcast. You can check it out. It's amazing. And so having that in the palm of my hand in my cell phone that I can set it up anywhere, anytime, uh, invaluable tool. And like I said, you can try it absolutely free by utilizing the Align code and going to open-together.com slash align. That's open, O-P-E-N dash together t-o-g-e-t-h-e-r dot com slash align 30 days absolutely free if you do not absolutely love it then cancel no biggie i think it would be silly for y'all not to try this because it's absolutely free so jump over to open dash together.com slash align to get your breath work and mindfulness on it seems like there's almost like probably almost absolutely projecting but like a, a distrust in ourselves, which would cause a compensation towards reaching out for information as opposed to listening in for connection, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever comes up. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, (laughs) the hermeneutics of suspicion has seeped so deeply into our psyche that it has become second nature to us. And so, yeah, I, uh, I think you're right. I think there is a there's a deep connection between our ability to trust others and our ability to trust ourselves. And again, how could you trust yourself if all you really practice is checking in on your beliefs, checking in on your propositions, checking in on your pictures, even if you're right, even if people even do that. Um, but how, how much are you checking in on this other machinery we've been talking about? So think about well, I've got these many, this many likes or I have this many connections on Facebook. What skills did you acquire? What skills did you acquire in that? Did you? Do they transfer? What, what new states of mind, what new perspectives have you realized? Did you any? What altered traits of character? Any virtues being cultivated? Notice that almost always the answer to those other questions is no. And so we, 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 get, we get caught up in these ersatz surrogates that are starving us for what we're actually seeking. And so, of course, we're going to distrust ourselves. You get, I mean, if you were largely frustrated in your efforts to get meaning, you would not only distrust the world, you would distrust yourself. I wouldn't say that it's, you know, a, a thirst trap on social media is completely void of of value as far as like <laughs> evolutionary development or, or learning because it is a form of virtue signaling you know and it is a, i think it is a form of just like hunting like peacocking or anything of the sort like i think that we are not that distant from the you know the bird that's doing some mating dance and it's you know feathers are going up or any of that it just looks a little different but i i think that that's essentially being expressed in like a digital form and then you know, it's easy to ridicule. It's like ah, but I think you could also ridicule the the bird that's you know dancing for. Well, but 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 I mean, way. the problem with sexual selection is it directly competes with natural selection, right? And so you get the problem of the peacock. The problem with the peacock, the male peacock, is it's ridiculously incapable of ex- escaping most predation because of its of its tail, right? And so right, we we can hijack. Right. The, I agree with you. It's plugging. We can hijack salience machinery. Because, you know, all of this is wonderfully salient, uh, but we can do that at the expense of our ability to be adaptively connected to the world. I mean, I mean that's, that's, I mean yeah. that is basically, I think, Frankfurt's notion of bullshit. 
bullshit is when the salience machinery has been uncoupled from the machinery of trying to track reality in a deep way. Yeah. I'd like to close with, you know, actionable practices yeah. that people can engage with in order to start to, you know, tap yes. into yes. wisdom. You know, if there is this, this, you know, this wisdom deficit in modernity, you know, like what's, how do we actually do that as opposed to just continually intellectually pontificating about the idea of wisdom within ourselves or you're stirring our heads around about it? Yeah, uh, totally. And so, I mean, I spend a lot more time actually trying to uh, create ecologies of practices and communities for those ecologies, or at least let's say I spend as much time trying to create um, the ecologies of practices and the communities supporting them as I do in theorizing about how they work. And I try to have those two talking to each other and helping each other yeah. as much as possible. I mean, first of all, like I and I'm invoking it, you need an ecology of practices because each practice has a, a set of strengths and weaknesses and you want to find complementary relations so you get that opponent processing i was talking about earlier so each practice can help correct the other and help uh, each practice um, discover bias within itself uh, let me give you two just a quick example of this so we're we're increasingly familiar in our culture about mindfulness practices and what mindfulness practices do is they basically shut off all this inferential machinery and enhance your capacity for insight. And you need insight when you need to jump out of an inappropriate framing. You're locked into the wrong way of looking, and you need to break that frame and open into a new frame. That's the aha moment. And so what mindfulness does is it shuts off the inferential machinery so that you can jump out of, uh, uh, of an inappropriate frame. Now that's, well, don't I always want to do that? Well, you have to be careful. Because that jumping process, right, this is what I meant by the adaptive processes are also open you up to self-deception. That jumping process is also the process you engage in when you jump to a conclusion inappropriately. So sometimes you need to do the opposite. Sometimes you need to shut off the insight machinery in order to protect the inferential machinery to go step by step and not jump to conclusions. That's a practice called active open-mindedness. You learn about cognitive biases, you learn how to identify them when you're actually engaged in them, and you actively counteract them. And then what you do is you set up opponent processing between mindfulness practices that shut off inference for the sake of insight and active open-minded practices that shut off insight for the sake of inference, and they're constantly pushing and pulling on each other, like the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. And then what you do is you want to create, then, okay, now both of these are sort of sitted practices or mental practices. Exactly right. And what I'm now missing is how does that connect up to my sensory motor interaction? So you need, a, you need movement practices. What we talked about earlier, but this is just individual practice. Yes. So I need to complement my individual practices with dialogical practices where I meet with other people in good faith dialogue. This is what I mean about you need to build up an, an entire ecology of practices. But here's the good news. Many of these are right, backed by bona fide, vetted, I could say, by, by traditions and increasingly by good cognitive science. And so you can understand better their strengths and weaknesses and how they compensate and correct each other and put together an ecology of practice. But you're going to need to situate that within right, the dialogical interaction with other people. You need to situate it within a community. And so you have to, right, you have to 
create an ecology of practices, and you have to find or create with other people a community that's committed to such ecologies of practices. That's how you cultivate wisdom. And one of the advantages, and I'll say something to a benefit to people from a religious tradition is there's good evidence that if you're in a religious tradition, you'll be much better at overcoming foolishness and cultivating wisdom than if you're secular, because that's what a religion is, I would argue. A religion is a rich ecology of practices, dynamically alive, situated in a viable community and tradition. Here's the bad news for religious people. Although being in a religious tradition is better than being secular for cultivating wisdom, it doesn't seem to matter which religious tradition you're in. And the end goal, if there was a goal of religious tradition, ultimately probably be to arrive you back to a, you know, like a, a, a wordless tradition, you know, where it's like, it's like this, it's like the scaffolding and it's still scaffolding of ideas and practices and, you know, an ecology of practice and such that are, arrive you to a place that eventually, you know, the, the, you know, the, the peak of that place probably would be actually ultimately releasing the religion and not becoming addicted to the religion or bound to the religion. I agree with you. It depends what you mean by religion. If you mean credo, what I believe, what I assert, totally. Uh, and that's where we tend to emphasize the difference. If you mean religio, how I become deeply connected to myself and to each to other people right. in the world, then yet you then you're just finding the depths. And remember, most cultures don't even have a distinguishing word for between religion and culture and me. Like we, that's a that's a very much a Eurocentric way of thinking because we've we've tended to reduce religion to faith and then faith to belief and then belief to the assertion of propositions without evidence, which is a ridiculous kind of degeneracy. We've lost so much in that, in that progression. Yeah, it seems like the modern, a lot of the modern forms of religion are kind of like, um, I don't know, like brands yeah. in a way, you know, and they're eventually leading yeah. to religio, like what you're saying, I, I think, like, I, I feel like that's kind of like a, a like a, there's a little like, I don't know, there's like, what is that called? Like a fly in the ointment. You know, I think the fly in the ointment started off, the ointment started off religio. And then the fly was like the human influence and greed and insecurity and all of that stuff kind of got, got dropped in the ointment. And then we can still leverage yes. the ointment. It's still good stuff, you know, but I, I think on the top of that is winding back to where we started. I think was, that's, you know, that really I mean, I, I think I'm in deep agreement with that. I, like, I, th I do think, I know, I, in fact, in the sense of I have good reason and evidence to believe that there are people sometimes in, who who have because of my work have returned to a traditional religion and found religio and found flow and found the cultivation of wisdom and i don't have any objection to that but for many people the fastest growing demographic group are the nuns the n-o-n-e-s people who belong to no religion they largely don't find the religio they're hungering for because most of those people the nuns are not sort of atheists they're they 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 have this really it sounds important uh, but we we need to reflect on it. They, they they call themselves spiritual but not religious which means they're hungering and looking for religio but they don't want all the propositional structures or the the, the metaphysics that isn't sort of reconcilable with science or the weird sort of history that these institutions have had of traumatizing people but they do want the religio they do want the religio yeah I, I wonder if maybe there's an opportunity for that to form or if the solution is to go back to the well world. i don't know I, I i keep saying that to put on my tombstone neither nostalgia nor utopia because uh, i mean i do think 
we should, I at least believe in practicing a deep and loving respect to people of good faith within the religions, because I am convinced that there is much I can learn from them without agreeing to uh, become a member of a particular religion. And this isn't just sort of pluralism. I mean this in a deep way, a, a deep way, good faith discourse. But I do think we have to, all of the world religions are wrestling with the scientific worldview, and they're wrestling with uh, the meta crisis, the environmental crisis, etc. And I, I do think we have an opportunity to learn from them, but if this does not sound too arrogant, but to also create beyond them in order to address what we're confronting right now, which is just in all dimensions, we're finding a dramatic acceleration of the complexity of the problems we are trying to address and their interconnection and the complexity of that is also growing. Yeah. Yeah, which again comes back to unicity. So it's yes. like respecting the old and the new. It's like old. I've heard. I've heard. I think I might be saying this incorrectly, but it's on the lines of like old people teach you about the things that don't change, and young people teach you about the things that do. That's beautiful. So you want to have a you know? A I've 20, heard that before. A, That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you jumped out of your seat. Like, yes. That's Better really one. good. That's really good. <laughs> it's going in. No, because it makes me think of a point from Zach Stein. <laughs> this goes back to something we were saying earlier, and I think this is one of Zach's great points. We have lost the deep meaning of education, which was the connection between generations, right? The old to the young, and like you just said, and, and, and culture depends on that intergenerational, you know, passage, right? And communing and connection. And look, notice how badly we treat our old people in this culture. We have instead reduced education to preparing yeah. us for the market often uselessly because by the time the people get the training the market has shifted and they're lo they're lost but we've lost the intergenerational function of education uh, and uh, that's uh, when you said that it was like yes exactly exactly right well i this was a real treat man thank you so much i i feel like hopefully we get to do this again i feel like there's more more to go it's interesting containing this down <laughs> in like a little hour conversation because i feel like once you get around so you get around like 45 <laughs> minutes i'm like all right we're in but i would love for people to go and check out what's the most relevant place to point people to go deeper into your work or or, or where, where you think would be good go to my youtube channel i mean the the, the primary thing is awakening from the meaning crisis which is the long argument about a lot of this but you'll also find two other sub-channels, Voices with Verveke, where I do this dialogical work with other people, very much like you and I did here today. And then I have uh, like the Cognitive Science Show where I, get, I, I work with other people and we, 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 we do the cognitive science together about consciousness or the self or transformation or psychopathology. And so that's, those are the places to look. Thank you for this. I and did I'd be happy to come back, Aaron. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Yeah. Yeah, me too, man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. That is it. That is all. Thank you all for tuning in. Over and out. Bye. Hope you guys dug that conversation. Once again, I want to thank Mr. or Mrs. CGO-74 for leaving us a review on this podcast. If you leave a review, probably read it on here and uh, I read all of them. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you for subscribing to this. So you get all the episodes. We've got some bangers coming up. I think we have like, we have a ton. We have like 16 episodes. Everyone, I would prefer to just release all of them because I'm very excited about it. But 
they're on their way. So subscribe so you can catch those guys. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for doing you. Folks that have joined the Align community over at alignpodcast.com slash community. It's absolutely free. Been really enjoying getting to connect with you guys from literally all around the world. We have over a thousand members in there now. I drop in every day. It's great to get to connect, say hello, and just appreciate you being there. So that's it. That is all. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.